three women talking to me about sex. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty easy. Actually, I'm probably going to talk a little about sex here, too. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, my, uh, that's my specialty. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the only podcast out of Oklahoma that's worth a damn, as far as we're concerned. If you didn't know, that was Daryl Ray to begin our show. He is a next interview in our series of interviews that were performed at Skepticon 5. Daryl Ray is an author. He has two books that are skeptically inclined. Uh, they are The God Virus, How Religion Affects Our Lives and Culture, which was released in 2009, and Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. Today's topic will be, among other things... Uh, centered around sex and religion and how religion still affects uh, our lives even though we've done our best to shake all its trappings. So, I do hope you enjoy. But, uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time sitting here with us. I know it's busy. You have a lot of events. Are you doing other recordings with other people today? Not today, that I know of. <laughs> did, you, did you do a workshop yesterday? Yeah, I did a workshop yesterday. What was that workshop? It was on leadership. I, I taught a little leadership consensus building technique that I've used in corporate America for 20, 20 years. Oh, yeah, that's right. You were in the, in the corporate world for a while. Yeah, right. That was my career in corporate uh, organizational psychology. It was what I did for 29 years. So have you done workshops before? I mean, I've, this is the first time I've ever seen a workshop at a convention. Well, yeah, I've, I've done many workshops. In fact, I think I may be the person who started all this. About four years ago, I started trying to get local groups to do workshops when I come in town, because, I mean, that's my expertise. I've been doing workshops for, for 30 years in leadership, and I think we're doing a lousy job of leading in many of our organizations. So I wanted to increase and improve the skills of, of uh, people in leadership. In fact, I wrote an article that was published last year in American Atheist magazine on leadership in the secular community that deals with some of the common problems that everybody everybody has. So, so uh, we... Uh, so I've been doing kind of workshops like that, just in local groups. Mm-hmm. And then in Kansas City, we had our own convention last month. And we had a oh, workshop. I missed that. Yeah. Man. We had a workshop track. And we had great workshops. Uh, and very well structured. Um, I think we had uh, six workshops. Wow. And I did one on um, conflict management. And somebody else did, uh, well, Amanda Kniff, who's here right now, did a workshop on, uh, on lobbying. Yeah, she has a lot of important things to help. That's atheist. She, she's great. She's great. She did a great workshop. And then we had uh, oh, a couple others. We had another one on uh, fundraising that was awesome. I was for the best workshop I've ever been to. Uh, wow. On, on that kind of thing. Really good workshop on fundraising. So, yeah, I, it's, that was the first time I've ever seen anybody do workshops at a convention. Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, they decided to do one here. <laughs> and I said, the Secular Student Alliance is getting ready to do one and is going to do workshops in, in uh, July. Yeah. So I think it's, it's starting to take off. I think you're right, yeah. because, um, actually, Amy, Amy Breeze is here with us as well, um, with uh, the Secular Coalition of America, we were on their uh, first conference call, right. and they were talking about how they're going to teach us how to lobby, Yeah. you know, and I'm sure a lot of it's going to be fundraising as well, but that's yeah. uh, pretty interesting, because, I mean, I know it just sounds like a lot of work, and so you just go, but I don't really know any strategies of lobbying our congressman, right. and we need it in Oklahoma. Yeah, 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 you really do. I want to go back to the workshops briefly because it's one of my pet peeves. Okay. Having done workshops for 30 years, I've seen most of them done poorly. And I think we need to be proactive in the secular community. Um, 
getting people who know what a workshop is, know how to do a workshop, and supervising them in their workshops. So at Kansas City, what we did is everybody was doing a workshop, had to submit their outline in advance, get it approved, and show us how they were going to meet the objectives. And because uh, too often the speakers think a workshop is just an opportunity to talk for an hour, hour and a half, <laughs> rather than involve <laughs> people and teach them skills. And they let, and they also don't control the groups, and they let groups get out, of, you know, talk about stuff that's not related to the workshop. Yeah. So uh, I mean, we've all been in workshops that went way bad. Of way course. Wrong. And it's just a big waste of everybody's time. If you start getting a reputation from doing bad workshops, you'll lose attendees. Right. So my big bugaboo right now is uh, let's start being intentional at conventions about workshops and teaching people. And it's not like you have, it doesn't take a lot to teach them. I've, got, I've even got a template for how you do a workshop mm-hmm. that I'd share with anybody. So if your listeners are getting ready to do a convention and they want to do workshops, I'm encouraging that, but don't do it half-assed. All right. A half-assed workshop is worth worth worse than no workshop. Well, maybe uh, the board for Free OK will will ask you for advice. I think I'll you're you're, you. you're a local. Why not? Yeah, duly noted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I've seen you give talks. Uh, the first time I came across you about four or five years ago, when you were uh, going around the, I don't know when you were giving your talks over the uh, God virus. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, you came to Oklahoma City, which was great because we don't get too many people down there. Um, last year, or two years ago, uh, you were doing your talk over um, your book, Sex and God? No, I was doing, two years ago I was doing uh, a research on sex and secularism. Oh, okay, yeah. there we go. We asked 14,000 atheists about their sex lives. And nobody had ever done that before, so that was what I was talking about. It, well, actually, it was less than two years ago. About a year and a half ago. Yes, that's why I saw you the Skeptics of... Um, that's oh, right, yeah. I did it at Skeptics of Oz, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That was yeah. fascinating research. We just we just had a great time doing that. Yeah, okay, well, that's, that, that's great, because I want to know, um, can you explain how religion affects our sexual mores as atheists, even though we've, you know, rid ourselves of religion? Yeah, I see that all the time. I see people act... And in fact, that's what I'm talking about here at this con- conference, the Skepticon, is why do we act like Christians? Uh-huh, okay. And, you know, that's stupid. We are not Christians. I'm not a Christian. Why do I have to be ashamed of my sexuality? Why Why do people hide if they're gay? Why do people hide if they're polyamorous? Why do people hide if, uh, you know, if they're kinky? There's right. no reason for that. We are... We're sexual creatures. We have our own sexual preferences. And there's nothing wrong with almost any sexual preference. Now, obviously, pedophilia and that kind of bullshit is not, not right because it's non-consensual. But if you're over 18 and you want to have some kind of relationship sexually with somebody else, that's your business, not the government's business. It's not the church's business. But our culture doesn't have that attitude. So it, it seeps into our minds. I tell people that we, we swim in a polluted stream. You know, our whole culture is polluted with this puritanical idea about sex. And, I mean, I, I show a picture in one of my talks of a, of a, porn, um, a porn advertisement uh, um, like you drive down the road in, in Missouri, yeah. if you want to find a porn shop, you don't look for the porn sign. You look for the religious sign above it. Say porn, <laughs> porn kills or porn you know, destroys marriages or whatever. Right. You have a gigantic billboard that's costing $3,000 a month. What a waste, huh? But it's a great advertisement for the actual porn shop. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that great? Like the golden arches for it, porn shops. It is actually what's going on, and the religious don't realize that's really an advertisement. And that's what it should be for us. I don't feel guilty walking in a porn shop. If I, want I to shouldn't. Yeah. 
But we do, don't we? We do. I have yeah. a tick, you know. It's something yeah. I have to go across that threshold. It's there. Jesus is watching you. Yeah. <laughs> think, think about it. If you're married, if you're Christian, you're married, or you're religious, yeah. not, you're ha- every time you get in bed with your spouse, you're having a threesome with Jesus. <laughs> I didn't think I was, but you, yeah, exactly. I never thought of There's someone in the back yeah. of my mind saying, ooh. Jesus is always watching you if you're having sex. And there's a right way and a wrong way to have sex. There's the sex that you should and they shouldn't do. The sex is going to send you to hell and sex you won't. Right. You don't just get rid of that the minute you leave the church. It's still, some of this stuff is programmed in you since you're like three, four, five years old. Yeah. I think it's significant, though, that um, it, it's, it's so ingrained in our society, whether we're, li- whether we're religious or not, it's, it's become a taboo, you know. Yeah, um, you can't and, even and, talk about it. Right, and you can, and, and the the human body itself is just it's just shamed. I mean, we yeah, right. And we're taught at a very young age to be to hide and to be shameful of our bodies. And I have, I really don't think there's a whole lot of, and I I know it's probably religiously based, but I don't think it. That's not it's not part of religion. It's not because of, well, I'm not explaining that right. <laughs> but I well, think no, it's hard to keep saying. away what's religion and what's culture. Right. Exactly, and I well, think that it all started with religion, and it is, has become society. In, in, uh, in Sex and God, I, I actually explore this very, uh, probably a third of the book is dedicated to just this one question. Mm-hmm. What, where do we get this kind of shame? Yeah. And uh, it's, there's a lot to it, but it's not very, it's not very complex. It's, if you just look at patriarchal societies, all patriarchal societies use shame to keep women under control. And it's primarily women, number one. Right. But there's male shame, too. I'll come back and talk that soon. Female shame keeps women guilty about their sexuality, about their sex drive, about their own bodies, uh, about the way they raise their children. I mean, there's just all sorts of shame that comes from... But it's patriarchal society. And, and I go back and I look at the history of, of all this stuff, going clear back to uh, four or 5,000 years ago, well before agriculture really took over the world, uh, even 10,000. And what we see is that patriarchal societies... Uh, all have this female shame approach. All, okay. of, all of them do. And then religion comes along, whether it be Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, uh, Christianity, Islam, it doesn't matter. Right. They come along, and, and, and Judaism, and say, wow, this is a great idea. You can really keep women under control with the shame <laughs> thing. And they just picked it up and ran with it. So it wasn't invented by religion. It was just uh, picked up and used by religion. So religion's like a tool for it. Patriots. Religion goes, if, if you read the God virus, you'll know that religion's always looking, it's mutating, it's constantly mutating. Right. So once it finds a tool that works, it's, it's like evolution. All religions are evolving. And we're seeing it right before our eyes. I mean, we literally are seeing the evolution of religion in America today with a simple thing that happened two weeks ago. Billy Graham... After 50 years <laughs> of having Mormonism on his cult list, took it off. Right. 50 years. Billy Graham <laughs> thinks Mormonism's a cult. What's changed? He has one conversation with Mitt Romney, and it comes off the list. <laughs> now that's evolution. Uh, Mormonism has evolved itself. I mean, look at evolution. Um, Mormonism used to be polygamist. Um, right. Mormonism used to be uh, racist, and uh, I mean all sorts of things. And you're seeing it, Mormonism evolve. You're seeing evangelical Christianity evolving, and they're coming closer and closer together yeah. in the interest of their God virus. That's, that's the way it works. It's true. And sex is a really important part of it. I mean, if you 
if you take sex out of religion, almost all the religions on the planet would collapse. <laughs> they won't. They would collapse. Of course. How do you how do you have how do you have Christianity without Christian guilt and shame? Yeah, how do you spread your religion genes? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, you were in organizational psychology uh, for you say twenty years. I just said twenty nine years. Twenty nine years. Wow. Um, is that history part of the reason that's drawn you to um, sex and you know how it affects our psyche? Well, I understand organizational dynamics as a result of that, but that's not really the main thing. Cause okay. I, I loved sociology, anthropology. That was my undergraduate. Yeah. If you could have made a living with that, I probably would have done that. <laughs> so I couldn't make a living there. And then I thought I wanted to be a minister. So I left. When I finished my master's degree, I went to become, I went in a master's program in a seminary. And I got my master's degree in religion. But after two years and getting my master's degree, I realized I didn't, I didn't believe any of this bullshit. Yeah. So how can I tell somebody else to believe what I don't believe? So I, I, did, I never did become a minister. I did preach. I was a substitute preacher. <laughs> off and on for like about almost 10 years I'd preach off and on at different churches at, at somebody's request to substitute you know the ministry yeah. on vacation I do have this one distinction in my whole substitute preaching career I never got asked to come back a second time <laughs> my sermons were way good they were way too liberal <laughs> <laughs> you know Jerry DeWitt had the same story whenever he came to Oklahoma yeah uh, Jerry's you know he's a good friend of mine you know he, he works together on recovering from religion with us so. yeah <laughs> that was going to be my, my next question yeah I, you've started you've with the founder of recovering from religion uh-huh. you know is there any personal story that you have that made you want to create these organizations well, after the God virus came out, I just got overwhelmed with people emailing me and saying, I need help, huh? and I don't know where to go. There's no community. I go to the Free Thought or the Atheist group, and they're, they basically look at me and said, we've been there, done that, we don't want to hear it. Yeah, right. And, so I, and I saw it myself, because I go to Atheist groups and see new people come in and never come back. Or if they did, I'd say, why didn't you come back, or what, what makes you uncomfortable? And they'd say, well... They're, they don't want to hear my story. They don't. I'm in pain. I don't have anybody to talk to. Right. So I just said, you know, AA has got a good model in some America. <laughs> you know, uh, atheist. I mean, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. So let's just see if we can create some kind of model where people could come together and share their stories and, and get over the pain and then move out. Mm-hmm. And you know, the difference between um, uh, between uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and RR is uh, we only have ten steps. And we found that if you take God out of it, you only need ten steps, by the way. I see. <laughs> but our people come in, they'll stay a month or two or three, they'll tell their story, they'll get it off their chest, and then they'll go join one of those free thought groups. Well, that's great, because yeah. as, you know, a veteran of these atheist meetups, I, I admit it's a little too much for me to hear. Every single time I go, I have to listen well, yeah. to a new story about, yeah, I understand, you're going through this rough, it'll get better, yes, you right, know. Right, yeah. I want to say that, but it just happens all the time, so. It does. Yeah. In fact, Red McCall, our uh, current president of Oklahoma Atheists, he runs a meetup where he does recovering from religious. I guess you guys have ways of helping people who, who start these meetups? Like, do you okay, have... We've got an entire support structure network. We've got like six or seven team members that are all, they all have different functions like we have a good web person we've got a group coordinator a leadership we you can't become a leader unless you're vetted first you I see apply we ask you some questions and look you over and you know then we say yes or no I mean most people get in I'm not we don't turn many people down but right we want you to we want to know you're not a flake or a, 
you know, a secret Christian or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is a group uh, that called itself Recovering from Religion. When I first started this, I got meetup.com to give us Recovering from Religion as a yeah. phrase. Yeah. They didn't have that in there. So that was my initiative to get that in there. Well, the problem is I can't, I can't control who uses it. So there was oh. ex-Jehovah's Witnesses in Chicago... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, in uh, in Portland or Seattle, of the Northwest, yeah. who started using Recovering from Religion to promote their particular site. And I thought, oh good, we got an RR group up there. Let me talk to them. And I start looking at their site and start emailing them and ask a couple questions. It turns out they're ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're still Christian. <laughs> and they're trying to say, oh, there's better ways to be a Christian than be a Jehovah's Witness. No, no, no. no. <laughs> not Recovering from Religion. You're just going from one to the another. <laughs> And then I had a house church in Chicago that, that advertised itself as recovering from religion. Turns out it's a fucking... Oh, I'm sorry. You can say whatever you want here. It's yeah, a it's fucking podcast. fundamentalist family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a house church. Uh, yeah, so you had to use fucking to do the alliteration. So that's, that's, that's loud on this podcast. <laughs> so, so I can't control who uses it. But we... Uh, we do have a trademark. I mean, our, our trademark, our, right. our, and nobody can use that. If you see that on a website or in, somebody's using it on a business card, that means they are legitimate. Yeah, they're yeah. not some flaky group out there. Uh, yeah. Well, that's excellent. Um, I've run through all my questions. You were great. Well, I, I, there's, one, I, there's one thing I, we didn't talk about. I almost got to, and that's... Yeah. We talked about female shame, but we didn't talk about male shame. Yes, let's go back to that. I, I you know, because that's yeah. my suffering. Yeah, <laughs> male. See, uh, it's the female shame is really obvious, but the male shame is not as obvious. And here's the way it works: our culture says you are a bad male, you're a bad father, you're a bad husband if you don't control your women. You don't oh, control women in your life. You're right. You're right. So if your daughter gets pregnant, it's your shame. Mm-hmm. It's hers too, but it's your shame. If your wife has an affair. Or, 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 you know, or anything sexual that's not, quote, appropriate within the Christian yeah. framework, that's your fault, because you should be controlling your women. Right. And that goes way, 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 way back, far before religion. It's, it's a patriarchal component, mm-hmm. but it's very useful to religions, because we keep women out of control that way, we shame men into keeping women under control right. that way. So I think we way overlook the, the sh- men, that's why men can't let go and be free sexually themselves because they're supposed to be controlling the women. How do you control a woman if you don't have to control it yourself? Yeah. And you're not supposed to be masturbating, by the way. I, you probably didn't know this, but... Uh, yeah. I don't know who... Don't um, yeah. I'm not sure anybody abides those rules, but yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> the Pope does. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> because uh, masturbation shows a lack of self-control. Right. And, yes. of course, they don't talk about women, but they do talk about male masturbation, and they, they condemn that. And I've got some... Yeah, do you think that the, you know, those goat herders even thought that women masturbated, you know? <laughs> I'm not really, you know, they, they didn't care. They didn't, they didn't put themselves in that position. They didn't. Bible didn't say anything about it. Yeah. Where did this idea, this initial idea that women needed to be controlled come from? Oh, patriarchal society is based on property. And so you've got you've got to control your property. You've got to control your sheep and your cattle. You got to and and who gets those sheep and cattle when you die? So you got to know who your progeny, your children are. So you got that means you got to control yeah. sexually control your women too. Whether you're polygamous or not, you got to know that every person that's born to your women is your baby, 
and then you, those babies then get your property. It's all based on property. Yeah, you don't want to help pass off someone else's genes. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I guess it just, I guess I, I come back to the notion that maybe at some point women were a threat to men. Why, and that, so they felt that they needed to be controlled in that, because of that. Is that? There's no evidence for that. Okay. The, the, we don't see this change, this significant change in the status of women. And, I, and I'm overgeneralizing here. I don't, yeah. say, I don't want to say that's true 100%. But we, in, at least in terms of history and anthropology of sexual relationships, we don't see this oppression of women happening until, until you, become, you, you start um, uh, herding cattle, herding sheep, right. and controlling the land. Because in order to farm, in order to raise food for yourself and your family and your sheep and your cattle, you have to control that land. And, and, that, and you want that land going to your progeny, not some interloper. Right. You know, another tribe comes in, rapes you, and you raise the kid. Yeah. yeah, that ain't gonna work because it's my property, and I don't want that guy that raped my wife getting my property, or even even if his, I may have killed him after he raped yeah. her, <laughs> and I'm still not gonna. So you know, you see that in uh, in humans. I mean, there's this this idea is, but it's cultural. This idea that we own women, and that women's sexuality belongs to the men. It's it's very cultural, and I'll I'll show you how that works. There's a not there's a culture in China called the Na culture. Where women are totally in control of the uh, of the sexual relationships. Yeah. And uh, when a girl turns has her first period, she goes from being a child to being an adult. Just there's no adolescence in this in this culture. Right. You know, you know, you would think, well, adolescence. That's every. No, not every culture has that. Right. So once she's gone through her first period, she's now a woman. She gets her own room with an outdoor entrance. She can invite any man or as many men as she wants <laughs> into her into her uh, bedroom. Uh, there's some rules around that. She's totally in control. The guy gets invited or doesn't get invited. She can have multiple lovers as she wants. It's all her business. In fact, women take a bit of pride at having more than one man as a lover in that particular culture. Who the, if she gets pregnant, nobody cares because it's the uncles that are considered the fathers, not the uh, uncles and the mothers. And the girl always lives in her mother's house. Oh, that makes house. a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So they don't care who, who's, who gets pregnant right. or who gets pregnant by whom. And uh, the man, the lover, and there's no marriage. They don't even have a word for husband or wife for marriage <laughs> in this culture. No word for husband and wife in marriage. That's, that blows their religious rights mind. Yeah. But this culture's been going on for thousands of years. We know this because Marco Polo visited it in the 1200s. And he wrote about it. Yeah. The, there is one rule. The guys have to be out of the house before breakfast. <laughs> you, you, you don't live with your spouse, with your lover, with your spouse. You have to be out of the house. By, you either walk a shame before we start <laughs> cooking eggs, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you see, I mean, this is a, and these, this is a herding culture. Yeah. They herd, and they move around a bit, and they do a little bit of gardening, but not a lot. Okay. Uh, and they've been around for, for thousands of years. Uh, hunter-gatherer societies, like, um, like the Hadza culture in in Africa are similar. The, the woman has got primary control of the sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. She may mate with a man for four or five years. She gets tired of him. She kicks him out. She finds another lover. Yeah. And it just, so you might have four, five, six live-in, quote, mates during a lifetime. And there's, there's not really the concept of marriage in these cultures. Why do you need a husband if the village is going to raise the child for you? Remember Hillary, Hillary Clinton's right. book, It Takes a Village? Well, 
That's really what's going on. Mm -hmm. The village is raising these kids. Yeah. And the kids get great training. The uncles and the aunts are the ones that are teaching. In the in the Manganian culture in South Pacific, uh, the the rule of girls control the, the sexual relationships. And the rule of thumb is a woman should have three orgasms for every time a man has an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds, of, hundreds of years that are going on, and and the ants are in charge of teaching the boys and girls how to about their sexuality. Out of the uh, our minds here. Yeah. yeah. So your aunt would teach you how to please a woman. Yeah. And your aunt would teach you how to respond to a man. So you would get sex education. It's really good oh, sex aunt education, aunt. and it's been going on for thousands of years. Now the missionaries showed up in the Mangadian Island and tried to missionize them into Christianity. Yeah. And they were able to convert them to, quote, Christianity, but they could never get them to stop having sex. <laughs> the the so, so they still, they have tons and tons of premarital sex. Yeah. Not a big problem. Uh, one anthropologist says that the average, the average male has sex six or seven nights a week and pleases the woman three to five times every night of the week. Wow. Now, by the time they're 29 years old, that drops down to five times a week. Yeah. So, you know, the guys are getting worn out. Yeah. But you are, in that culture, you're not much of a man if you can't please a woman two or three or four times in one night. Yeah. I mean, and, and you may be there tonight, but another guy may be there the next night. It's all within the female's control. That makes now, me we're, we're sitting here laughing about this, but this is serious stuff for this culture. Yeah. That's the way they work. And they look at us and say... What the fuck? Why would you want to get stuck with one mate for the rest of your life? Right. And even if you do want to get stuck with one mate, nothing wrong with that. I'm not kind condemning that. Yeah. Uh, don't condemn other people for making different choices. Yeah. That's their job. That's their, that's their business, not yours. But religion says, no, you have to stay monogamous for the rest of your life. Yeah. Now, my contention is very few Christians are actually monogamous. Because Jesus said monogamy is one mate per life, period. You yeah. get one sex partner for your whole life. Right. There are almost no no species on the planets, no species on this planet anyway, that are monogamous. Almost none are monogamous. It's too difficult. True monogamy is the anglefish, anglerfish, where the male is really tiny, yeah. and the female is really big, and the male embeds himself in her skin <laughs> for the rest of his life. That's monogamy. <laughs> You're not making a very good campaign for monogamy. <laughs> the image I want. Yeah, I want yeah, to well, the, the, all, all uh, Humans, I mean, how many humans do you know have only had one sex partner their entire life? I don't. And even people who say, oh, I've been monogamous my whole life, how would you know? Right. Yeah. I know so many Christians who had sex before they got married but told their spouse they were a virgin or they'd never had sex before. They're lying. And you can see why they lied. Yeah. There's an incredible pressure to, to be pure like that. It is. So, yeah. It is. It really hit me whenever you were talking about how men have to control their wives. Now, I think of myself very liberal. You know, I'm very open and want my wife to do, you know, whatever she wants to do. Yeah. But whenever I'm around my dad, who's older, he's a lot older than I am, um, and my wife speaks out, she says something um, a little brazen, <laughs> she curses in front of him, I get a little... You know, oh. I, I kind of crunch up a little bit like, oh, God, you know, my dad thinks I have, my wife's running amok on me. Yeah, know? there you go. That's it's, exactly right. Yeah. And you're, it's your fault that this this woman is not towing the party line. You know? Yeah. And I wouldn't feel that way any other time yeah. except for when we're around my family. Yeah. 
but when I am around them, I do feel like I I am the goat herder. I have to right. I keep everybody in line on, right. on my on my property. So yeah. that was that was a little interesting, and I don't like to admit that. Yeah. I would want to admit that yeah. here, right? But it, it is how I feel sometimes. Well, it's very common. Your your emotions are right down the middle of where most men are. Yeah, and it takes. I think it takes guys a long time to get over that shit. So we've been. It's been beaten in our heads from the time we're very young. And, and nobody comes right out and says, you got to control your women. No. Nobody says it out loud anymore. They did. I mean, <laughs> as little as 50 or 100 years ago, they were still saying it. It's implied. And you look at the political debate we've seen lately. I mean, that's what these guys are really saying when they're talking about legitimate rape and all this kind of stuff. Underneath the surface of that is women need to be controlled. Women don't have a right to their own bodies. Women don't have a right to decide when or if they get an abortion. Women don't have a right to do uh, birth control without the man's permission. I remember, uh, it wasn't that many years ago, in the 40s and 50s, some states required, if, if, if they allowed birth control, the, the, the husband had to give the wife permission to get birth control wow. or to use birth control in some states. In some countries, it's, it's, it's still true in some countries. The husband's got control over the woman's birth control uh, in, in some Muslim countries, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, if it's, they have it at all, if they have the access they have at it all. all. Right, right. Yeah. So, all right, well, stuff. hey, you did way more than I thought you were going to do. I really thank you. we got 30 minutes, and I think we can use all of this. This all is right. great. I really appreciate well, it. Don't. Don't ask me to talk about sex or you won't give me a shit. <laughs> Again, this is Daryl Ray. This is Amy Breeze. This is Chad okay. Stewart. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheist. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheist is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music in the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archives Community Audio Collection, available at www.archive.org.